Let the word go forth from this time and place. It's history. The events. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. The drama. This would have life now. The figures. If we dig deep in our history and our doctrine. And remember that we are not descended from fearful men. It's hardcore history. I've had a lot of requests to talk about an event from recent history. And I understand why people who listen to the show are interested in recent history. Makes perfect sense that if you understand how history sheds light on current events, it's only natural to want to talk about recent history because it's so much more obvious the connection that it has to today. And we've said on this show before that life is like being born into the middle of one of those television soap operas, isn't it? And without going back and figuring out how things got to the way they are today, it's hard to know why person A is sleeping with person B or person C is mad at person D or person E is having these flashbacks and amnesia and why the heck is that without going back and figuring out how we got to this place. And it sure is easier and more in some ways interesting to draw connections between recent history and current events rather than trying to go back to, say, the Battle of Marathon in the ancient Greek and Persian wars and trying to tie together that connection with today's current events, although it is just as connected. Many more letters you have to go through. It's not A to B. It's A to B to C to D to E to F, etc., etc. But I enjoy doing that often. And yet I have a lot of sympathy for those people who keep asking me to do something more recent like the Cold War. I've received more requests to do a show on the Cold War than any other historical event. And so I started to sit down and do a few preliminary takes. You know what a take is. A take is a try at recording a piece on the Cold War, and I ran into all sorts of trouble. The first and probably most important piece of trouble I ran into was it couldn't help but become political. That's a constant problem with recent history, isn't it? One of the things that historians always say is that you need a certain amount of distance from historical events before they can be adequately examined and investigated. The passions of that era, whatever era we're talking about, have to cool for an educated analysis to be able to take place. And you can see that when you look at something like, oh, the Punic Wars that the ancient Romans engaged in. We used that example not that long ago, didn't we, in one of the shows? Where the passions of that era don't mean anything today. The fact that the Romans were probably appalled and angry that the Celtic peoples near Italy 
rose up and joined Hannibal, the enemy, whose stated goal was to destroy Rome, I imagine that was a passionate occurrence, something that drove people to anger, but not anymore. And most historians would consider that to be a good thing. This allows us to see things as they really are, as opposed to seeing them through the blinders and the prisms and the colors and the shades that people who actually lived through the event had to contend with. And for the most part, I agree with that. It's nice to be able to make it dispassionate. And yet, you could also make a case that those passions and those falsehoods and that ideology and all of those very emotional things of the era actually have an important meaning in history as well. It becomes hard sometimes to understand why people did things that they did in history if we don't understand how the emotions and the passions of the times somehow played into it. So while it's good to get distance from historical events to gain perspective, sometimes understanding the passions and the misconceptions and the stereotypes and the prejudices and all that stuff that fades away as time goes on provides clues to understanding. So there's a synthesis you might want to achieve. You want the dispassionate, faraway view that allows you to ignore things that cloud the reality. And yet at the same time, you want to have enough connection to those things to factor them into your equation, don't you? Example, in the very first history show, we talked about Alexander the Great and Adolf Hitler. And one of the things we brought up was the fact that the very passions and the ideology and the hatreds and everything that was connected to Alexander's life, life have faded. We're left with the more dispassionate look at the man, the more historical, the giant overview. And that colors his legacy somewhat. Because look at Adolf Hitler. We still feel visceral about Hitler. We hate him. We despise him. We want his legacy always remembered and vilified. And I understand that, too. I feel the same way. And yet, in some senses, it's harder to judge the man as you would judge Alexander the Great because those passions interfere with seeing him the way we see every other person that might have fallen into his category. And yet, at the same time, if you took out all that stuff. Would you have a real understanding of what motivated Adolf Hitler and how the people that lived through that war and the aftermath of that war felt? The emotions play into it enough so that if you took them out, you'd have as much of a misunderstanding of events as you would if you tried to write the history of the man one year after the war. So there's a synthesis you want to have here. You want to understand the human side of this enough so that it makes sense, and yet you want to be far enough away from the event so that you don't get so caught up in those things that you create a history that's not true. And so to get back to these requests I've had to do a show on the Cold War, I sat down and started to do some preliminary recordings on it, and it, it was unavoidable that they became somewhat political. And yet as I was going through it, I thought, well, how can you you can't do a, a dispassionate view of the Cold War because that won't be right. It won't come out correct. And yet at the same time, you can't do a passionate view of the Cold War because that won't either. 
Too many people are still alive. Too many documents are still secret. The ramifications of what we went through are still too political. And the parties that are involved with American politics today still have enough responsibility for what went on in the Cold War so that it's very difficult to do a dispassionate historical analysis of it. So I sat down and tried to do it three or four different ways. And every single time the program got political, more political than I wanted to get. And I thought, well, maybe I just won't do the Cold War. Maybe we'll just stick to things that predate the Cold War. You know, World War II and before is our area of operations, and we just don't go any later than that. But to me, that seemed kind of like a cop-out as well. So I thought, well, you know, at the, at the risk of getting too political, we will try this, and I hope you will cut me some slack. And, and then I sat down once I took the political side out of it, you know, got all my notes in front of me, all of my research documents, had all these things I wanted to bring up and talk about. Another thing became quickly apparent. Shouldn't be surprising to any of you. How do you cover a 40-plus year-long conflict in a short program like this? You wouldn't be able to cover the First or Second World Wars in a program like this, and they lasted four and six years respectively. How are you going to cover something that lasted 40-plus years? So the answer to that is obvious. You have to pick an angle. You have to pick something about that conflict and focus on that. And so I started to do that. And even that became difficult because, of course, it all bleeds together, doesn't it? One thing leads to another, which leads to another, and all of a sudden you're on this meandering route around the Cold War. And I thought, well, if I can't do it any other way, maybe that's the way to do it. And I'm sure that many traditional historians will wince when I try to do a program like meandering through the Cold War. Maybe we'll just call it that. Or Cold War musings, thoughts about the Cold War. And yet, this program isn't designed to necessarily teach you narrative history. This is a show for people who like history already. We're talking about history at the water cooler. We're a talk show about history. So if we leave you with many things unsaid, I hope you understand that that's the way we view the mission of this show. I mean, first of all, what is the Cold War? Let's just try to determine when you would start a conversation on that. If you're going to meander through the Cold War, at what point do you start your journey? Because there are all sorts of dates that people have tried to establish as the starting point of this conflict we call the Cold War. Now, before we even go there, I would like to make the case that I consider this to be the most transformative event in American history. Once again, I'm probably in a very, very small minority to say that. A lot of people will say the Civil War was the most transformative event in American history or the Second World War, or the Revolution, or any number of other things. But to me, meandering through the Cold War is important, and the reason that I decided to do the Cold War, even though it's a topic that gets us into all kinds of eddies and currents I'd rather not go into, is that you can't understand today without understanding the Cold War, and nothing has changed the world in a long, long time as the Cold War, and nothing has changed America ever, in my mind, as much as the Cold War. 
And again, this shouldn't be surprising, should it? Wars are transformative by their very nature. Just look at how much the United States changed between 1941 and 1945 during our involvement in the Second World War. You realize that wars are like giving societies steroids. Everything happens faster. Everything is more streamlined. The government, which normally takes a long time to get anything done, all of a sudden gets things done real quick. The pressure cooker environment that a war creates has a way of transforming nations and always has. The fact that the Cold War lasted 40 years is what makes it so, in my mind, transformative for us in the same way that the Punic Wars, which lasted a very long time, were so transformative for Rome, and there's about a gazillion other examples out there. So where would you start your little long and winding road through the musings of the Cold War if you were going to? Well, 1947 is a date that is traditionally given for the start of the Cold War, because that's when it became apparent that the United States and the West, which in some sense were the same thing after the Second World War, because for a while there was no West except for the United States. Let's remember this, that when the Second World War ended, the United States was probably, you could argue this point, probably the most powerful nation in the world, probably the most powerful nation compared to all the rest of the world put together. If you talk about economics or military power or prosperity. See, that's the part that people forget. The whole world was destroyed, basically. The whole world was rebuilding. And the U.S. had so much spare stuff that we were shipping food and products and personnel everywhere. And are obtainable only from abroad. Greece must have help to import the goods necessary to restore internal order and security so essential for economic and political recovery. The Greek government has also asked for the assistance of experienced American administrators, economists, and technicians to ensure that the financial and other aid given to Greece shall be used effectively in creating a stable and self-sustaining economy and in improving its public administration. The very existence of the Greek state is today threatened by the... We weren't just not damaged by the war. We came out of the war better than we went into it. Everybody else came out worse. Now, the Soviet Union, which was what Russia was called back then, came out of it next best to us, I guess you could say. And only really in one category. What the Soviet Union had been able to do was build up a very, very large military. And while their economy was in shambles, while their people were shell-shocked, while their country was traumatized, they had this giant army. We did too. But after the Second World War, we started to do what we always do after a major war in this country— the United States started to demobilize, and demobilize at a furious pace. We went from having 12 million men under arms in 1945 to a skeleton force in 1946. We couldn't get the boys demobilized fast enough. We started putting ships and aircraft into mothballs immediately. We were ready for the war to be over and for us to return to 
the phrase that came out of the First World War, normalcy. Everybody just wanted the war to be behind them. Thank God it's over. Let's just go back to life the way it was. Problem was is the world had been transformed. And one of the transformations was the Red Army. That's what the Soviet Union's military was called. And the Red Army was no longer in the Soviet Union. The Red Army was in Central Europe. The Red Army had taken the whole eastern part of Germany. It had taken Czechoslovakia. It had taken Romania, Bulgaria, Poland, Hungary. The Red Army was poised to take over continental Europe if that had been what they wanted to do. Now, the reason the U.S. didn't think that's what they wanted to do, by and large, is that we had been in negotiations with the leader of the Soviet Union throughout most of the Second World War. That leader, of course, a man named Joseph Stalin. Now, Stalin was one of the original Bolsheviks who helped topple the Russian regime back in 1917 near the end of the First World War. And this takes us back down our meandering road. Hard to do a linear discussion of the Cold War because there are so many places you can go back to that are relevant. I mean, I'll give you an example. We just said a few minutes ago that so many people date the beginning of the Cold War to about 1947. Some do to Winston Churchill's famous Iron Curtain speech, right? When he says that an Iron Curtain has descended across... An Iron Curtain has descended across the continent. Behind that line lie all the capitals of the ancient states of Central and Eastern Europe. Warsaw, Berlin, Prague, Vienna, Budapest, Belgrade, Bucharest, and Sofia. All these famous cities and the populations around them lie in what I must call the Soviet sphere. And all are subject, in one form or another, not only to Soviet influence, but to a very high and, in some cases, increasing measure of control from, uh, from Moscow. Or George Kennan, the famous American uh, State Department official, who said that the Russians, the Soviet Union, was expansionist and needed to be contained. A lot of people date the Cold War to 1947. But if the Cold War was a result of the ideology going on in the Soviet Union, then how can you possibly date it from 1947? If Joseph Stalin is a major cause of the Cold War, and I would make the case that he is, how do you date the Cold War's beginning to simply the middle of Stalin's reign? I mean, do you have to go back to when the Bolsheviks toppled the Tsar of Russia in 1917? Do you have to go back to World War I and say that, listen, the Tsar might still be running Russia had the... Germans not done so well against the Russians early on in the First World War, weakening an already precarious regime and making it weak enough for the Bolsheviks to take over. Let's not forget, the Germans actually sent Vladimir Lenin on a train back to Russia because they knew he would destabilize the whole place. It was already a rusting hulk of a country, a rotting shell, and you send Lenin in there and the stresses of wars, and the hatred of the Tsar, and all these things put together, and you end up destroying the Russian state and replacing it with this regime of communists who had never had control of a country in the history of the world. And that single event 
is still with us today. We're still living the results of Lenin toppling the Tsar in Russia. But see, folks, Lenin didn't invent communism. So again, on our little meandering path through the Cold War, can you really start it when Lenin got control of Russia and turned it into the Soviet Union? Or do you have to go back to the 1800s? Do you have to go back to the revolutions of 1848, the failed revolutions of 1848? Or the failed revolutions of the 1860s where socialist and communist groups tried to topple their governments, sought reform, the famous French and Paris commune uh, disasters after the Franco-Prussian War in the 1870-71 period? And do you have to go back to the guys who wrote the first communist writings, Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels in the 1800s? Is there a better example, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, of the idea that the pen is mightier than the sword, than the writings of those two guys? The Communist Manifesto and Das Kapital, a couple of people writing a book and publishing it, leads to the world we have today. Those guys don't write that book. And how different the world would be, right? There wouldn't be a Cold War if those guys didn't write the things they wrote. And they didn't spring from a vacuum. The wonderful thing about history is that everything is connected to everything else. And we all stand on the shoulders of those who came before. And Marx and Engels were writing about something called the dialectic played a large role in their thinking. Well, the dialectic comes from a German philosopher named George Friedrich Wilhelm Hegel, who was writing around the early 1800s, maybe even as far back as, you know, the late American Revolution period. So these things go way back. I mean, the French Revolution itself has often been called the spark of Bolshevism. That's the, you know, 1780s and 90s, folks. So... This story of the Cold War is a story about the culmination of revolutionary ideals that, I mean, some people take it all the way back to Magna Carta with King John Lackland in England and his barons in medieval times. But I think it's fair to say that the French Revolution was the momentous event that changed thinking. The thinking culminated in philosophers like Hegel who culminated in philosophers like Marx and Engels, who culminated in an ideology that in the transformative 1800s during the Industrial Revolution took hold, wasn't able to break through. Revolutions failed in the 1840s, in the 1860s, in the 1870s. But in 1917, under the stresses of the First World War, that ideology finally got power in one country, Russia. And if you read Marx and Engels, they never thought it would ever take hold in a place like Russia. Their whole idea was that the Industrial Revolution and the changes in workers and managers was going to be a stage in industrial development that followed industrialization. So in Marx and Engels' mind, the states that would go communist first were the most developed. England, Germany, France, these were going to be the places that embraced communism as the people who founded the idea believed. What ended up happening was just the opposite. The places that ended up embracing communism were the places that were more backward, industrially speaking. Russia, of course, but then later China and Korea and Cuba and places that were more peasant-oriented, less industrialized. And as we said, the Soviet Union was the first state to ever live under communism. And of course, then what happens 
is you have theory running smack dab into reality. The ideas of Marx and Engels were classroom ideas. They were theories, untested, right? The revolutions that would have put those theories to the test had failed up until 1917. When the Bolsheviks got control in Russia, people like Lenin leading the charge and people like Stalin right with him in the background, all of a sudden those theorists had to turn those theories into concrete reality, workable things that they could run a country with. And maybe you could make a case that part of the roots of the Cold War, at least from the other side, come from how the West reacted to the 1917 revolution. The West was obviously busy with the First World War when the Russian state fell. But very quickly afterwards, 1918, the war ended, and I don't even know if it was 1919, certainly by 1919, but even in 1918, the efforts were underway to overturn the Russian Revolution. The so-called White Army, which was the army of old line Russia, or we could just say non-communist Russia, was out there on the run, and all of a sudden the West starts providing money and officers, and later large numbers of troops to fight the Red Army in Russia to overturn this revolution. 1919 was a big year for counter-revolution. The uh, United States, the British, the French all had troops fighting on Russian soil to topple the communists. Leon Trotsky, another one of these guys who was the hardcore of the Russian Revolution people, formed the Red Army and was fighting these White Army troops and allies who were trying to overturn the revolution. And the communists in the Soviet Union never forgot that the West tried to topple them initially. Even though I don't think that that's a major factor in the Cold War, remember what we were saying at the beginning of this program, the passions and the fears, the colors and nuances that people have during their lifetime matter. And the people in Russia were already a little bit paranoid, a little bit xenophobic, and had every reason to be. And now, here the West comes in with military force to try to overturn their revolution and reinstall a czarist-type regime made the people in that area bitter. So even if the communists were going to live peacefully side by side by the West, that probably nixed that option right there. But see, this is why I don't think that mattered as much. Because if you looked at the way the communists viewed the world back then, they didn't see coexistence with the democracies and capitalist societies as part of the plan. They sought world revolution. They sought solidarity with the people in other nations. They wanted to have a Soviet Union that spread the revolution throughout the entire world. This is where the roots of the Cold War really took form because that is an implied threat to everyone else. It's a threat to the established order. And when the Soviet Union was able to, in the Second World War, advance their forces into countries that weren't part of old Russia, Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Romania, you know, that's when that threat of world revolution really began to take hold. It's one thing to sit in the Kremlin and talk about overthrowing the capitalist societies. It's another thing to have millions upon millions of men, thousands of tanks, thousands of artillery pieces in Central Europe 
with that philosophy backing you up. Now, by this time, Joseph Stalin has eliminated all the other communist leadership opposition he ever faced. Lenin had died. Trotsky was assassinated by secret agents of Joseph Stalin in 1914, I mean 1940, in Mexico, in exile. So Stalin was now running the show all by himself. And to me, if you wanted to put your finger on somebody to blame for the Cold War, it has to be Joseph Stalin. Now, this is not necessarily a popular viewpoint among historians. Many revisionist historians like to point out things like economic factors, capitalistic competition. You know, there's a lot of theories. And the great man theory of history has been uh, challenged for a long time. It's the old way of looking at things, many historians will say. But I'm kind of a traditionalist when it comes to history. I believe in the great man theory of history. I think it's connected to forces and movements and economics and all these other things as well, ideologies, emotion. I like to bring emotion into it a lot. But at the same time, I always look at the way human beings make up the wild cards in history. I mean, if there's no Alexander the Great, history's different. You can talk all day long about forces and trends and strains, and, but without Alexander, history's different. Without Julius Caesar, history's different. Without Adolf Hitler, history's very different. And without Joseph Stalin, I don't think you have a Cold War. You can talk about all the economic theories you want. Without that man and his personality in charge of the Soviet Union, I'm not sure there is a Cold War. And if there's no Cold War, the U.S. is a very different place. The West is a very different place. The world is a totally different place. Which brings us up as we meander to the real Cold War, which began after the Second World War. The um, last few conferences held by the Allied powers at the near end of the Second World War was where the post-World post War II world had been laid out. Roosevelt, Churchill, Stalin, oftentimes um, Chiang Kai-shek from China and uh, Charles de Gaulle, from France, would be brought into these conferences, the most famous of which is Yalta, and discuss, okay, once Germany's defeated, how are we going to do this? How are we going to do that? Yalta, by the way, uh, a lot of American conservatives have always pointed out that, you know, that's where Europe got sold down the river. This is where some of the political side of the Cold War that bothered me so much comes into things. People start blaming parties and individuals for what ended up happening in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. The common line about China after it went communist was, who lost China? And it's a blame game. So those sorts of things incline me to not talk so much about the Cold War. Well, Franklin Roosevelt took a lot of flack by some historians for what he didn't do at Yalta. And what he didn't do at Yalta was put anything into place that would hold Joseph Stalin accountable for his agreements. Because what Stalin did was play Roosevelt like a violin. And Roosevelt was in no position to resist it. He was a very sick man. He would die soon afterwards. But he was also, like many American presidents, a huge optimist. He believed things would work out for the better. And when they had these discussions at Yalta, he often took Joseph Stalin at his word. Now, Churchill was a lot less trusting. 
But people felt like Winston Churchill was a little bit paranoid when it came to communism in general, and Russia specifically anyway. But the agreements that were made at Yalta were not kept by Joseph Stalin, who was an opportunist and who was going to push as far as he could before someone pushed back. When Roosevelt died and Harry Truman, the vice president, assumed office, the dynamic changed because Truman was not where Roosevelt was by the end of his life, trusting, looking forward with optimism to a post-Cold War world. Truman found out about the bomb only after becoming president. Many people say one of the reasons that the United States dropped those atomic bombs on Japan was not to finish the Second World War, but to help set the tone that would help prevent the Third World War by showing the Russians and Joseph Stalin exactly what we had, how far ahead of them we were, how if you didn't stick to your agreements at places like Yalta, this is what you might run into. Again, I don't believe that. I mean, maybe it's a side thing, but I think the reasons for dropping the bomb are much more conventional and less conspiratorial. Nevertheless, once again, we have to deal with the passions and the emotions, the finger pointing. All that stuff is part of recent history. The people who made these decisions, some of them are still alive today. And their sons and daughters certainly are. So it's still emotional. You will still run into World War II veterans of the Pacific that will claim that the dropping of the atomic bombs saved their lives because they didn't have to invade the Japanese mainland. So once again, we run into politics. And the Cold War became a real problem for everyone in the world once the Russians acquired atomic weaponry. In 1949, they tested their first atomic device, which was years before the United States thought they would be able to. And this upped the ante, because now the Cold War became the most dangerous conflict in world history. And this is another reason that this whole era was so transformative, was because unlike all the wars that had ever happened in the history of the world, a war between these two Cold War adversaries, the West and the Communist bloc, could now destroy the entire world, or at least civilization as we knew it. Never in the history of the planet had the stakes been so high. And to me, that legitimizes many of the things that were done in the Cold War that I look at as negative. You can say, well, we never should have done this, and this was a bad thing for the country, and why on earth did anybody ever do that? I think you have to put yourself in the shoes of the people who were making decisions during the Cold War and realize what the stakes were like to them. And this is part of what I was discussing at the beginning of the show about how, yes, you want to have some distance from events in order to gain perspective. But if you have too much distance, certain things start looking insane. The Cuban Missile Crisis, 150, 200 years from now, is going to look insane. Of this nature, last Tuesday morning at 9 a.m., I directed that our surveillance be stepped up. And having now confirmed and completed our evaluation of the evidence, and our decision on a course of action, this government feels obliged to report this new crisis to you in fullest detail. The characteristic of these new missile sites indicate two distinct types of installations. Several of them include medium-range ballistic missiles capable of carrying a nuclear warhead for a distance of more than 1,000 nautical miles. 
Each of these missiles, in short, is capable of striking Washington, D.C., the Panama Canal, Cape Canaveral, Mexico City, or any other city in the southeastern part of the United States. But you had America, to have lived through it to understand how the, the emotions of maybe the world completed. being destroyed plays into your decision making. There were people in 1962, during that terrible week, when the Americans and Russians were facing each other eyeball to eyeball over the placement of Russian nuclear weapons in Cuba, that people thought they wouldn't wake up the next morning. Some of the Kennedy advisors have written that they left the White House late that night to go get a couple hours sleep before they came back to deal with the issue again, who wondered whether or not they'd be awake in the morning. Many of them were getting their families out of major cities. If you don't understand the pressure that the idea that not only might you and your family not be there in the morning, but the country that you love and grew up in might not be there in the morning, hard to understand some of the decisions that were taken in the Cold War if you don't realize how high the stakes were. Just look at how much we justify changes we make in this country today because of the 9-11 attacks and the threat of terrorism. Now magnify that 25,000 times. Realize that the worst case scenario we have for a terrorist attack in America right now involves a nuclear device smuggled into a U.S. city. And now realize that the Soviet Union had tens of thousands of those devices, much, much, much more powerful than anything the terrorists might get their hands on, aimed and targeted at every American city over about the size of Weed, California. And you start to realize why people might have felt the pressure to make decisions that in hindsight look very bad. And this was my wake-up call growing up in the Cold War. I grew up at a time and in a family that were very patriotic and loved the ideals of the United States strongly. And when I turned about 17, 18, 19, and I started looking at some of the things that my country was doing, I became appalled because they didn't seem like they fit the myth of America to me. I started studying some of the secret clandestine programs that our government was involved in. You can go look them up yourself. Programs like Project Artichoke, Project Bluebird, MK Ultra, all these secret things that our intelligence services were doing. You know, dosing our people with LSD, mind control, testing on human subjects. Things that, if you look at them in two or three hundred years, will not make any sense at all. But if you realize that the people who were making the decisions to do these things thought that the world could be destroyed, I think you have to cut them a little slack. But as we meander through our discussion on the Cold War... While we cut those people some slack because of the times in which they lived, we need to remember that the difference between the way the United States was at the end of the Second World War, 1945, and the way it is today is night and day. And if you want to take it a little farther, the way we were in 1939, a few years before we got in the Second World War, and the way we are today is night and day. And not just because 65 or so years have passed. Because the United States, in, in a very broad sense, in an ideological sense, in an outlook toward the rest of the world, was rather similar from its founding all the way to the Second World War. 
We were an isolationist nation, to use the modern term. We didn't believe in getting involved in the rest of the world's conflicts. We wanted control of the Americas. We didn't want Europeans coming in here. That's what the whole Monroe Doctrine was about. But the kind of country we are now, sitting astride the world like a colossus, a huge military whose involvement is all over the world, that springs from the Cold War. That is not connected to the values that this country was founded upon. And I know that sounds accusatorial. It sounds like I'm saying that it was something bad that America did to become this giant power and sit astride the world like a colossus. But again, let's go back. In 1946, who was going to do it? You know, people talk about the Cold War being a non-shooting war, but they forget. If you don't have the Cold War, you don't have the Korean War. Sprang right from the Cold War. We lost 30 to 40,000 guys in the Korean War. You don't have the Cold War. You don't have Vietnam. Lost 40 or 50,000 guys in Vietnam. If you don't have the Cold War, you don't have the Russian invasion of Afghanistan in 1979, and our support for the Mujahideen, who happened to be involved with a guy named Osama bin Laden, and you don't have Al-Qaeda today. So when you start to think about why we are, where we are in the world, you have to look back at the Cold War. And you have to ask yourself how it could have gone differently because when the Second World War ended and we left Europe by and large, started to demobilize our military, and the Russians were sitting in Central Europe with the same military that had just beaten the Wehrmacht, the German army in the Second World War. The Russians took the brunt of the Wehrmacht. Lost 20 million in that war as well. Who was going to prevent Stalin's Red Army from sweeping across Europe all the way to the Atlantic? There was no one else who could do that job. And you hear that from some American sectors even today, that the reason the United States is an empire now, and the reason that it's different than every other empire in the history of the world, they say, is because we're the only empire that didn't seek to become an empire. We became an empire by default. Now, I disagree with some of that, but what they're saying is that in 1946, who else was going to do it? And if we didn't do it, who'd be sitting in Paris today? The Cold War, in my opinion, is the most important event in U.S. history. And as I said, you could go down the list and say, well, if you don't have a Second World War, you don't have a Cold War. And if you don't have a First World War, you don't have a Second World War. You can keep playing that game till we go back to the Battle of Marathon and say, well, if you don't have a Battle of Marathon, you don't have any of these things. But if you're going to put the finger of cause, I don't want to say blame. See, once you get to recent history, we say blame instead of cause. If you want to put the figure, finger of cause in this whole thing, I want to go back to my great man theory of history and say that it's Joseph Stalin. And there's a lot of historians who said it was Joseph Stalin at the time. And then in the 60s, we got a lot of revisionist history that said, well, that's just, you know, anger at the bad communist guys. And we're so fond of just pointing our finger at one man, whether it's Hitler or the Kaiser or Karl Marx or whoever else and saying it's their fault. But folks, the personality of the man at the top in these regimes that are run by one man, whether it's Adolf Hitler or whether it's Mussolini or whether it's Joseph Stalin, plays a big role in policy. 
And if the leader of a country is paranoid, the policies of a country can often be paranoid as well. And Stalin was paranoid. And for good reason. I mean, if you look at Joseph Stalin's life as a communist in a non-communist world, if he wasn't as paranoid as he was, he would never have made it to running his country. He was the survivor in a mafioso-style government where if he didn't kill his competitors, they'd have killed him. But when a guy like that ends up running a country, to expect him to be the kind of world leader that Roosevelt expected him to be during the Yalta conference is naive because the people's personality in those positions influences policy. And Joseph Stalin always assumed that the West was out to get him. And he had some evidence to point out, and he constantly made reference to how the West got involved in 1919 in trying to overthrow the Russian Revolution after the First World War ended, as we discussed earlier. Use that as an example of what the West really wanted to do to Russia and how any agreements they made at Yalta or anywhere else couldn't be trusted because you knew what they really wanted to do was to overthrow the communist revolution. So, in my mind, the, the people who were sending me notes saying, Dan, please talk about the Cold War, wanted to get a better perspective on today. And I would say that we are still living in the eddies of the Cold War. That the whole Middle East right now is shaking off their legacy of the Cold War, and we're dealing with that shaking off of the legacy. And new forces are coming in and filling the vacuums where old ideologies once stood. The Ba'ath Party in Syria, the Ba'ath Party in Iraq that Saddam Hussein led, those were Soviet-style parties established in imitation of the Soviet Union's style. They weren't communists, but the Ba'ath were socialists. And the equipment in all these countries was Soviet. In Iraq, the majority of equipment we were knocking out in the first Iraq war was Soviet-made equipment. So you can see how the Cold War is still influencing everything we're doing. If there's no Cold War, we're not in Iraq today. And so to maybe sum up our meandering through the Cold War, and I mean, we didn't deal with the mutually assured destruction and the missiles. We didn't deal with so much of the specifics that you really have to understand to understand the Cold War. But I would make the case that if we really wanted to do a bang-up job of that, then this whole show, every single episode for the next 100 could be devoted to the Cold War. And we still might not do anything but a slipshod job of it. But to understand where we are today, you do have to understand how we got here. And the most transformative event in American history, in my mind, is the 40-plus year-long war we fought with the Russians. Could not understand. I mean, can you find me a country in the history of the world that went through a 40-year-long war, cold or hot, and didn't come out of it a totally different place than they went into it? To me, the bigger question is, had there never been a cold war had the U.S. been allowed to demobilize after the Second World War and stay demobilized, what would we be like today? If we didn't have to pass the National Security Act of 1947, which established the CIA, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, which created the intelligence apparatus that is so huge in America today, if you didn't have the threat of the whole world being destroyed because of the Cold War, 
Would any of that have had to happen? And to me, that's the more fascinating question is, if you don't take that left turn at the Cold War, how's the world different? And I, to get back to the point, would make the case that had Joseph Stalin not been in charge of the Soviet Union, we might not have had to do any of those things. Thank you.